Here's a distinction that makes a lot more sense on the page than it does over the air. We're leaving the first production of Henry V in 1599. Situation one. I turn to the woman with me and I say, I kiss your hand and I call you my queen. Reasonably, I might expect a smile. Situation two. I turn to the woman on the other side and I say, You are a queen. Reasonably, I might expect to get sued, or at the very least, punched in the face. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. Okay, now I'll explain that distinction. In 1599, the word queen, Q-U-E-E-N, meant monarch, just like it does today. But there was another word back then, queen, spelled Q-U-E-A-N, and that meant prostitute. The difference between queen and queen is just one of the dozens of examples of impertinent words and transgressive behaviors that you'll find in a delightful new book by Ruth Goodman. The title of the American edition is How to Behave Badly in Elizabethan England, a guide for knaves, fools, harlots, cuckolds, drunkards, liars, thieves, and braggarts. Ruth Goodman came into the studio recently to talk about the difference between cursing and not cursing, when not to blow your nose, and other ways to be polite or exactly the opposite in Shakespeare's England. We call this podcast My Speech of Insultment, ended on his dead body. Ruth Goodman is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Well, first off, you win best attention-grabbing book title. Kudos on that. (laughs) (laughs) It is funny, though. All the best bits. (laughs) They they are. But it's funny. By the time I got to the end of the book, I I was a little surprised how much uh, that was taboo then is still taboo today. I mean, in some ways, not... Yeah, not a lot has changed. Things like don't blow your nose in front of other people and don't mumble and close the door when you go to to the uh, toilet, or I suppose we should say the privy, and don't let people know what you're doing in there. I mean, it's pretty common sense. It's. I think it's remarkable, really, and it's the history of our culture, isn't it? I mean, that's who we are. That this is our tradition in the English-speaking world. That these ideas, they are the base that we learn at our mother's knee. But some things are very different, and and one of these towering transgressions in Elizabethan times that that no longer apply at all, unless you're meeting the Queen, I suppose, uh, is <laughs> bowing. And you say that. Bowing occupied a central role in peacekeeping and social cooperation. Tell us more about that, and and how big a deal was it not to bow when you were supposed to? I think it's enormous. Every social interaction carried this physical expression of the relationship between the two people involved in that relationship. This whole body of world of gesture, as well as words, that had to be gone through to establish what that nature of relationship was, who stood where, where where the sort of social balance was and how it could shift slightly, as well as expressing one's feelings, one's um, aspirations or one's disgust and loathing. They could all be spoken about without a word. Well, obviously, this is a, a lot of this is about maintaining class distinctions, right, and maintaining and refor- reinforcing this social 
hierarchy. Is that what's driving the urgency of it? I think it is. It's also about reinforcing gender positions and reinforcing age positioning. I mean, there's an awful lot of of literature telling wealthy young boys who you would expect to be in a position of great power to show respect to poorer men and women who would necessarily be of lower social status, but because they're older, these elite boys are required to show deference and respect to older, poorer people. So it's not just about social class, it's also about a world view. God had made everybody for a particular purpose, to fit in a particular perfect slot within society. God had made the system and he put you, he chose what place you occupied within that system. Well, that religious element, that's what removes it so far from our our times. But I'm also thinking that you could easily uh, recognize the country bumpkin from the gentleman by nice things like <laughs> manners, right? And Absolutely. This is a time when, when London in particular was growing so fast and you had so many different types of people slammed together in close quarters and coming into the city. And I think... Doesn't a thing like a bow uh, gain even more importance and significance in that climate? Exactly. It just shows, you know, are you somebody established within this? Do you know the rules of this social situation in this social place? Or are you somebody who's all awash and at sea and, and completely out of their depth? Absolutely. And they change so fast. I mean, that was the thing. It's not like there's one set of systems that you can learn as a child and they'll stay the same all the way through your life. No, 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 no. When you start looking, it's changing as fast as the fashion in clothes. I know this is hard to do on the radio, but uh, (laughs) illustrate that for us in terms of a bow. What was a proper, at a certain point, given point in time, what was a proper bow? bow and what determined wow. okay the well the biggest change the biggest change which perhaps is easiest to describe when you can't actually show someone is the change from what might be called uh, an English bow into what might be called a French bow now this change happens about the time um, that Elizabeth comes to the throne so in the time of her father we used the traditional English bow and it's very it doesn't fit almost any of the ideas that we now have about what a bow involves for a start you didn't bend forward you stayed absolutely upright your eyes looked down and then you put one leg in front of the other and you bent both knees so it's more like a genuflection that you might see within the catholic church than anything else and country bumpkins carried on using that because that's what they'd grown up with whereas in court and in london a much more Frenchified thing was coming in that was much more about the diagonal. Instead of straight on, you were using your shoulders a bit more. And now you do start tipping the body forward. Not at the waist, never at the waist. Always at the hip, the pivot of the hip. And again, one foot in front of the other, but this time you're not bending both knees. The front knee remains straight and the back knee bends. Your weight is sort of thrown to one side. Your hip slightly sticks out. It's, it's a much more diagonal classical look and that's quite important people were heavily inspired by the newly discovered greek and roman statues that were being uncovered in italy and greece well one thing that you point out that i never really thought about it in any detail was that if you have such a strict definition of proper of proper body movement say of gestures 
it's powerful in that if you ch- if you consciously uh, subvert that and change those gestures, it carries a lot of uh, weight. You're expressing. You have a lot of room to express mm-hmm. yourself within that. You and certainly you, do. Right? And it's not it's only most... bowing, but it's also, you know, whether you blow your nose or you pass gas or something at the wrong moment. Everyone knows that's I taboo. think it's just the most enormous fun. Uh, <laughs> There's so much there to play with. And uh, if you use, uh, break the rules and you use insulting or insolent behaviour, people understand it. They might not have gone and read all the books, but somehow they just know what they're seeing. We're sure, and we still do. I mean, you have a section about sitting, seating, where you're seated. That that carried enormous significance. But at a wedding, it still does. It is one of the things that intrigues me about this period, how many ghosts of the past modern life has, how many things can be brought back to this sort of turmoil of a time when, when everything was sort of changing and shifting at enormous speed and so many of the underpinnings of life sort of get set at about that point in history. Well, if you had to choose, if, if some annoying podcast host made you choose, <laughs> what was the <laughs> biggest taboo that you found in researching the, the book? Oh, well, of course, obviously, it's all, the, it's all the modern ones, isn't it? But the biggest, of course, is menstruation. Um, you know, I, I, you, there are, particularly when you look within popular literature, when you look within the scurrilous ballads that were sung in the streets and sold on ballad sheets, you know, they cover almost every subject you can think of. They do not hold back. I mean, <laughs> they talk about sex and farting and vomiting and pissing and never menstruation in any format whatsoever. It's, And if you're trying to find out what happened within that set of bodily rules, you know, you just meet this wall of silence. And it's quite deafening. Mm. Well, uh, switching gears to language, that is one of the biggest sections of your book. And of course, we're interested in that in terms of Shakespeare. So let's talk about some offensive speech. <laughs> I mean, that is many people's introduction to Shakespeare's curses. But I was kind of surprised that your section on offensive speech didn't contain anywhere near as many new words and, and insult phrases like you do find in the plays. No, that's a really interesting thing that real life examples are much more like modern cursing and swearing. They are short, repetitive, punchy. They're not inventive and clever. You know, something witty is funny, and that takes the sting out of it, doesn't it? You know, mm. if, you, if, you scr- if you really are half drunk and very angry, standing outside a pub and, you know, <laughs> screaming at somebody in the street, you're not in a mental state to think of something clever and witty, <laughs> and nor is the person on the receiving end. And we, we see a lot of um, accounts in church court records, particularly of the words that are being spoken by people angrily in the street. And it's completely different, as you say, from the Shakespearean. Well, let's get specific and and maybe compare some Shakespeare to to what people were really saying, because you have someone like Falstaff saying um, in um, Henry the Fourth Part One, something like, uh, you know, he calls his friend Bardolph a perpetual triumph and everlasting bonfire light because he has this red nose. Right. And then there then he riffs on that theme for for like 10 minutes. You write that what people commonly got in trouble for saying was something uh, as short as maybe f- it looks like five words, a turd in your teeth. 
Yeah, it's a good name. <laughs> a turd in your... I mean, was that a phrase like he's so ugly or it's like he has a turd in his teeth? No, or, no, no. Or, or was it a curse? Like, it, no, it means absolutely what is meant by the, the modern phrase, eat <laughs> Oh, there you go. Straight to the point. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty bad. Straight to the point. There's no finesse. There's no elegance to it. And, you know, it's just bang. And well, it, it wouldn't fill pages. It's, it's a of, very common phrase. It wouldn't fill pages no, of a play. And, and, of course, one of the other things is that, you know, Shakespeare and, indeed, his compatriots, they had to get their plays to pass the censor. So if they did use street language, that could well have, you know, ended up with the, the red line through it. Because there's no actual, you know, talk, saying that somebody's nose is like a lighthouse is, is funny, but none of those words are in themselves offensive. There's no blasphemy involved. There's no <laughs> mentions of, of sex or, or fecal matter. It's actually quite a clean and innocent phrase. So he, this word knave comes up all the time in Shakespeare. And yeah, it's, I didn't know from what you write, it seems that word had evolved in meaning so much from the 15th to the 17th yeah. century. What did it originally mean and how did it change? I think it's a particularly interesting word and it is one of the words that you do find in common insult and in Shakespeare. And it's a word that starts off as nothing more than a simple description of a social status. So, I mean, we still have a remembrance of it when we deal a back a pack of cards, so you get the king and the queen. Nowadays, people tend to call it the jack, but the older word is the knave. So the knave was somebody who was at the top end of the commoners. He wasn't a lord, but he wasn't a labourer in the fields. You know, he was a knave. But gradually that word comes to start meaning country bumpkin as opposed to a polished, educated gentleman. And then it starts to mean somebody who was stupid as well as a uneducated. Um, and then it starts to slide further in time and it becomes somebody who was not only stupid and ill-educated but also perhaps a little immoral and dishonest. And it's at that set of meaning that we hit the Elizabethan era and Shakespeare at a moment in which the word knave has slid down the social scale and has come to mean someone untrustworthy, someone who might turn into a thief, somebody who is worthless. I love that um, illustration you just gave us of sliding down the social scale and accruing meaning as it goes, the word. Um, but we also hear varlet and sirrah and saucy fellow. So who's a knave and who's varlet? <laughs> well, all of those words sort of describe the same sort of thing, but knave was undoubtedly the one that hurt most. And there is a sort of shade of meanings. So sirrah suggests that somebody is very servile. You know, they're, they're always, they're dishonest, but they're sort of, you know, oiling their way into people's favours. Varlet is, it would, would have less of that behaviour, would be more somebody who was oh, more likely to be perhaps drunken and thieving rather than cunning. <laughs> well, and a saucy fellow is somebody who's going to talk back all the time, who doesn't accept his place, who's for always, you know, pushing against boundaries and being disrespectful. Now, a lot of this information you looked up or you, you found it in court cases because people did sue over slander. And that oh, was yeah. very, oh. very, very serious. And, and you mentioned that a phrase like, you are an ass was an actionable term. And so in Much Ado About Nothing, when Shakespeare says Dogberry's sense of outrage, everyone knew what that phrase meant. It really resonated with many men in the audience because everyone knew how, how important reputation was. Absolutely. And I think there might have been quite a sympathy for Dogberry almost at that point because, you know, there he, if you think about his position, although he's laughed at 
consistently throughout the play. His position is of a very common man who's got official position. And, and naturally, he's going to be protective about that position, probably makes too much of it. He's probably deeply officious, and I think that comes through, doesn't it, his officiousness. Mm. But many, many of the audience will have seen his point. You know, yeah, you know, he is representing the law. To call him an ass is not just to call him personally an ass, but it's to call his office an ass, and it's to call his, you know, that sort of position, not just the person. But on the other hand, he is an officious idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and there so, were many you know, words mean, for stupidity. You had a fool and a there gull were many and words clown for and blockhouse. It's mm. funny, though, when you look at insulting women in this period, there were so many ways to insult a man, but basically the only insults, uh, or you write, the only insults aimed at women were almost always about sex, I suppose because women mm. were just considered worthless anyway, so you'd never... You never insult their intelligence. No, they're supposed to be stupid. I mean, <laughs> um, as far as people in the period considered. It was redundant. Um, I mean, it, yeah, exactly. And, and this comes down to the, the basic point. A woman's worth was within her chastity within marriage. And anything that stepped outside of that was bad. And you could make her seem bad by suggesting that she had stepped outside of it and that's what all the words come out come down to is she honest within marriage and I mean you I you know you you do find examples of women accused of thieving being described in court cases as an honest woman because she's chaste Mm. (laughs) the word honesty really only referred to this this central core that people were interested in about women which is do I know when the babies come from you know (laughs) That's really what it comes down to, isn't it? (laughs) Well, that makes sense then why there's so many words for prostitute. Doesn't it just? And and they cover such a range of behaviours and they they move from the merely suggestive, you know, a waggle tail is merely a flirt, isn't she? You know, she's walking down the street trying to attract attention. Surely that's a very different thing from somebody who's being called a whore. It seems like you, you can hardly pick up a play in Shakespeare and avoid the word prostitute in some form or other. I know. Yeah, it's everywhere, isn't it? Do you know, I first became aware of this when I was a child. We, we were studying Romeo and Juliet in class in school for O-levels, which, which you know, if you're not British, means the exams you take when you're 16, or used to, they've changed the names of them about a dozen times since then. I was uh, studying Romeo and Juliet, and there weren't enough books to go round in the class, so the teachers had had to sort of hunt in some ancient cupboard, and they'd come up with a couple of really old copies, which had been expurgated, and all the rude words removed. Which was utterly marvellous. <laughs> <What> was... <laughs> exactly. There was one lad in the class, and like every three seconds, it's Miss, I haven't got that bit. <laughs> Miss, I haven't got that. And then, of course, the teacher would have to explain what this word actually meant. Most of us would have passed most of it by, you know, we wouldn't have noticed. But no, we got every single sexual innuendo in the whole of Romeo and Juliet. And, and you know, it's every third word. <laughs> Fabulous. So it's a sort of experience that makes you a fan of Shakespeare right from the start. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Uh, We have all these words, though, for prostitute or or sex worker. But when you look at the range of sex, there were surprisingly so few words or or phrases to describe it, especially aberrant sexual practices. You know, you just have a handful Mm. of words that covered a lot of acts, it would seem, from your book. 
No, I, I think that's very much the case, that there was good sex and then there's bad sex, which is everything else regardless. And, and you know, it, it's quite clear that people thought that if you stepped over the line, that was it. Everything was everything. And people, when they're talking about bad sex, are often very confused about what exactly that means. And they use the same word for one thing or another and, or that we would think of as two different things, but they just sort of see it all as one. You get the same word, you know, if somebody talks about bestiality, for example, they might mean sex with animals, but they might also mean incest, or they might mean homosexuality, or they might mean what we would call S&M. Well, uh, it's really not changed all that much. I'm thinking because you you, you <laughs> point out that there's if you want to develop your theme, uh, whether you're talking about any of these things and just add an additional word or two, there were just three main topics to choose from. There was those bestial behaviors you're talking about, sexually transmitted diseases, personal hygiene. That is the unholy mm. trinity that you that you draw from. You know, I'm thinking what dirty whore, filthy whore. I know. Even now, isn't it? It is the standard stock phrases. The, the, the sort of the ones that perhaps we don't use quite so much now. The ones about having body lice and uh, and venereal diseases. What? No one's ever called you a poxy whore. <laughs> Not in modern Britain. Maybe America's different. <laughs> well, here there's all of this language to delineate and, and really uh, accuse women of bad behavior. But as you touched on a little bit earlier, reputation was so important at the time that these words had tremendous power. And I, mm. I find it really fascinating. A lot of your research is done on these court documents, and especially in the in the church courts that men weren't necessarily believed no matter what. And you write that when you openly accused a woman of, of whoredom, you faced a very real possibility of prosecution for defamation. Yes, you did. And and that comes through again and again and again, that, that people who sprayed accusations could find themselves in serious trouble. That was you know, basically destroying the peace, isn't it? You know, it's inciting bad behavior within a community and and personal reputation and community harmony were two almost holy goals personal reputation was how you judged yourself and how people around you judged you and in a world where there is no banking no insurance companies every single business dealing was about making a personal judgment on somebody's trustworthiness so your reputation was essential if you're going to do any sort of business at all, even the simplest sort of business. So I found an example of a woman who was accused of witch being a witch. And uh, the only evidence we have of this is a court case that she herself brought to try and clear her name. People had started calling her a witch. And as a result, the bakers within the town were refusing to serve her. She couldn't buy bread because somebody had attacked her reputation. And her only way to sort this out was to say, right, well, I, I'm taking this to court. I'm Look, I'm going to prove in an open court that I am not a witch, and then you all have to shut up and stop this silliness. Hmm. Um, so basically, people are looking for a public apology. Huh. Well, there's a whole other category of nasty speech that we haven't talked about, and that's the language of con men and thieves and <laughs> Shakespeare and playwrights. Other playwrights of the time, they borrowed so much from the lingo of criminals. I mean, oh, playwrights still do. It. Yeah, I mean, what could be more colorful, <laughs> right? I'm thinking of The Winter's Tale and, uh, and, and Simcox yeah. and Henry VI and... You know, tell us it's about just... priggers of prancers and... <laughs> 
Priggers of prancers, yes. They, they would sell you a dodgy horse. <laughs> Setting down horse salesmen <laughs> who would, you know, rub in coloured waxes and, and all sorts of fake things to make it look like a decent horse when actually they were selling you a broken down nag. <laughs> and I think almost everything we know about this sort of speech, this underworld uh, sets of words and, and jargon actually comes from playwrights themselves. And naturally such texts moved around between playwrights who all drew on it. I mean, it was a gift, wasn't it? A special secret language for con men. Yes! <laughs> Dark <laughs> right, words for things, you know? Money in the bank. And, and in the, I'm glad you mentioned that because you, you say, uh, you know, there's one question of how did people acquire a gentlemanly style of speech? How did people learn to speak correctly? And apparently, according to your book, you could get a long list of sources that one could read to that, that just epitomize good mm. English. But Shakespeare wasn't on it. In fact, Shakespeare was on the list of... Right, of bad role models. Yeah, absolutely. There are several tracts that were written for young gentlemen, for the education of young gentlemen, that are laying out how to learn, what you should be reading, how to educate yourself. They're, they're manuals of self-education, and they say, go and listen to a case heard in the Star Chamber. You'll hear excellent quality English spoken. They go and listen to some of the better sermons in these particular churches. There are very well-spoken divines giving sermons here. Read this book. This is beautifully written, you know, ad adopt this style, try and sound like you're busily translating it straight from Latin. And they're then saying, don't, for goodness sake, start copying any of them flipping playwright people. <laughs> <laughs> dreadful, dreadful behaviour. I mean, and you can sort of see their point in a sense. If I mean, we look back at and it seems like very archaic and flowery language to us. But at the time, there's an awful lot of slang. There's an awful lot of um, dialect words in there. You know, there's a heck of a lot of Warwickshire scattered through Shakespeare um, rather than good London words, which were always considered to be better. Right. Certainly it was cheap, accessible entertainment. This was the pop culture of Shakespeare. And also he made up a lot of words. And, and you say that that was considered very bad form to ever oh, repeat very one bad of those form. made up very words. Very low, really, really <laughs> low behavior to be using all that new language. I mean, it's, people say the same these days, don't they? Every time the Oxford English Dictionary gets updated and a whole load of new words go in, there's a flurry in the newspapers. Oh, it's dreadful, dreadful it is. You know, they put it in this word. Now that's not a proper word. <laughs> And I think that feeling has been going on for a long, long time. <laughs> well, we can't we can't leave the uh, topic of bad behavior without talking about hygiene. And um, you okay. know, some things have not changed. That is true. But there were some wacky conventions, at least to modern day my ears. And apparently, you were supposed to, you know, you're always supposed to wash your hands after you use the privy. But you were supposed to make sure that no one knew you had washed your hands. And you made it sound like drying well, your, not not wash your hands, but nobody. You shouldn't make it known that you were even there. You had even done that that unspeakable thing of that bodily exactly. function, right? Exactly. And it sounded like drying your hands in the presence of other diners or anyone else Ooh. was almost as taboo uh, as dropping nice. trowel. It's just not done, you know. <laughs> you don't make any movement, any sound, any reference whatsoever to these necessary bodily things. We all know you have to do it, but there's just no need to make a fuss about it. I mean, in a sense, it almost sounds Victorian, doesn't it? It sounds quite prudish. Well, we should... This is a really important point, though. We should make this clear that 
We're talking about what goes on in upper crust society, maybe at court and mm. elite people, right? What was proper for them? Because not everybody acted this way. And I'm thinking, and again, it, not always the best to go to playwrights, but Shakespeare showed men pretending to pee by turning their backs. And it was a very, uh, very mm. lucky convention to, to you could have uh, someone looking on the hedge, I think it's the phrase, or plucking a rose. That was a euphemism for, uh, for taking a leak. And if someone didn't want to be seen, they could turn away. When you're talking about just guys being guys among the hoi polloi, people weren't observing these niceties. I think rather like modern society, there are always people who want to live by the rules and there are always people who don't. And I, I suspect, you know, people being people, it was much the same. There's, in some of these sort of rules, you, you think to yourself, well, if you were a a ploughman. You couldn't follow that. It just would not be possible. It wouldn't be practical. It's ridiculous. You know, exactly. you're going to traipse all the way back to use. It's just nuts. You know, of course you're going to. Um, but that same ploughman might, on a Sunday, behave quite differently, mightn't he, in church? Mm. It's we all have differing behaviours that we exhibit at different times. And, and the, of course, the manners books tend to concentrate not just upon elite people, but also upon elite situations um, so that we get references scattered quite a lot across a lot of literature, actually, of, of gentlemen who probably could be very controlled when they needed to be, very, very precise and positively prudish about not wiping their hands in public, etc., etc., but may have behaved in a rather laxer way um, in other spaces. And there's quite a lot of literature to say that there were some gentlemen who would push that, really push it, you know? They would turn up in an ordinary tavern and behave like louts, obnoxious, arrogant, flouting of the rules. And, um, you know, hey, that still happens too, doesn't it? Right, a way to express your power. And there were a lot of ways to be disgusting at the table. It sounds like there were so many rules about how <laughs> to eat. I guess there still yeah. are, but I mean, things like don't mix yeah. up your food. Exactly. Well, I, I would say most, I, I don't know, because obviously I wasn't brought up in America, but I, brought up here, most parents would tell you to stop playing with your food. But the difference is, of course, that, that people in the late 16th and early 17th century were rarely eating off their own plate. So we sit with a plate of food in front of us and that plate of food is just for us. People in the 16th and 17th century were not eating off their own plate. They were using shared communal dishes. So clearly stirring around a dish that you're sharing with half a dozen people it's not so nice, is it? Oh, you that know? puts it in a whole who, who other wants light. Their dinner? This is this is maintaining yeah. social order again. Consideration for your fellow diners. So you're supposed to take from the bit that's nearest you. You're not supposed to reach across and grab the bit from the other side. You're not supposed to cherry pick. You know, I'm just having that bit and that bit and leave you with the rubbish. You're supposed to offer the good bits to your fellows. You're supposed to be very clean in your hands and your mouth because your hands and your mouth are involved in other people's food as well as yours. You know, if you're breaking bread, you need to have clean hands. If you're taking a piece of food out of a shared bowl, you need to make sure you've got clean hands. Well, pulling back and, and getting to kind of the big picture on all of this, you have an overarching theme that bad behavior can be much more revealing of a time and a culture than the exercise <laughs> of good behavior. And, and what that said to me, you say largely because history has reckoned with it far more eagerly. And by that, I took your meaning to be it's always the bad stuff that we find out when, when we look back as, yeah. a, as a historian, right? Because of yeah. these court records, because of the ballads you looked at, because there's a paper trail. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, if everybody's beautifully behaved, nobody bothers to write it down, do they? I mean, how boring would it be to write and somebody, and we went to the banquet and everybody behaved beautifully and their manners were lovely and everybody wiped their hands. And, you know, I mean, no. What you get is, oh, I went out, do you know what so-and-so did? That disgusting person. And, and, and people rant. And there's nothing more lovely than a good rant. <laughs> That's true, but but it could mean that you, we make as historians. I'm not I'm not including myself in that, but you, one can make too much of the bad behavior. Oh yes, because it's all yes, you're reading you can, about. and I think mm-hmm. that happens quite a lot. I mean, for me, I think the whole chamber pots out the window is is a perfect example of that. Um, most people have this image that everybody used a chamber pot and chucked the contents out of the window, and there are court cases of people being prosecuted for chucking the contents of. I'm so relieved to hear that. I didn't know how humanity survived. (laughs) (laughs) It was always a big question. But of course, they're court cases. Somebody's in trouble for doing it. Clearly, they were badly behaved people at every point. You know, some people's standards of housekeeping were high and some people's standards of housekeeping were abysmal. And that sort of spread of people will be people was there in the past just as it is in the present. And um, we know that there were some really dreadful behaviour by some people or by people who were living in such slum conditions that they had very little option. But of course the proper thing to do was for the maid or the housewife, almost always women. Women had to deal with all of this. The men could use these facilities and walk away. Um, would then supposed to take it down to the privy, empty it in the privy and clean the pot. Just to bring this up to today, I'm thinking that there's so much uh, talk now and and evidence of, in in the current political climate, of the erosion of norms of courteous behavior and of appropriate behavior. So I'm wondering what thoughts you might have on that, given that you have looked into the far past and watched just how quickly these norms change from from one generation to the Mm. next one. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I mean... It's as if there's a set of things that change every five minutes and another set of things that remain solid for centuries. You know, the exact nature of a bow or whether you say thee and thou or whether you say you and yours. These change repeatedly and they change when when the, the more puritanical forms of religion came to the fore and took political power. That changed the way everybody behaved, it changed the nature of language, it changed the nature of bowing, it changed the nature of dressing and moving in the street, it changed all sorts of basic social rules and then when that fell away and the restoration came you get a switch back to a completely different set of behaviours and, and social rules. And yet Everybody right through that thinks you shouldn't pick your nose in public and flick it at people. You know, so there's a sort of two-tier thing going on. Like, some things are just accepted as the basics and they don't change. And some things are sort of more li- more likely on the top and they flow and change and change back. And, and I think perhaps that's what my historical perspective is, is that we can get very cross sometimes about the things that float on the surface. And we forget that there's this base layer of agreed behaviour that sits at the bottom that everybody does still buy into. Well, this has been such a lovely conversation about a lot of naughty bits. So I want to thank you very much for it. (laughs) Thank you for letting me talk. It's been fun. Ruth Goodman is an author, historian of British social and domestic life, host of a BBC TV series, and an advisor to the Royal Shakespeare Company. The title of the American edition of her latest book is How to Behave Badly in Elizabethan England, 
a guide for knaves, fools, harlots, cuckolds, drunkards, liars, thieves, and braggarts. She was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. My Speech of Insultment Ended on His Dead Body was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Paul Luke at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Aidan Lyons at the Sound Company in London. We hope you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited. And if you are, we hope you'll do us a favor. Please consider reviewing the podcast on whatever platform you get the podcast from. When you do that, it helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it yet. We'd really appreciate your help in increasing people's access to these terrific interviews. And if you find yourself in Washington, D.C., we hope you'll visit us at the Folger Shakespeare Library on Capitol Hill. See a performance in our Elizabethan theater and come face to face with a first folio, the first printed edition of Shakespeare's plays. We hope to see you here. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.